A missing wealthy farmer who hosted sex parties at his private nudist club, called Kinky Cottage, was found dead in a castle tunnel three months after he was reported missing in May of 1968. His glamorous wife, her young lover, and his workmate all ended up being accused of murder, but it was the victim's actions that shocked the nation. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. I always start with a little warning to let you know that I do record on a sailboat, so it's likely you'll hear some boat noises in the background. I try my best to keep it quiet, but it's a noisy lifestyle I have. Today's case is called Kinky Cottage for a reason. There's a lot of sex talk today, so it's not for young ears. It's a fascinating case, though, and I hope you enjoy it. No, today's case isn't about Scotland's most famous resident, the Loch Ness Monster, although several of the characters in the story might be considered monsters in your mind by the end of the episode. Did you know that the official animal of Scotland is a unicorn? Perhaps the people who decided this were drinking a lot of their famous Scottish whiskey on the day this vote was taken. I think I love it there already. Let's sit back, grab your favorite bottle of scotch, and listen to this crazy case. Sheila Garvey was born Sheila Watson, but she met her debonair husband, Max, at a young farmer's dance. Sheila was blonde with an adorable pixie cut and a striking face. She was only 18 years old at the time and thought Max was extremely handsome and charming. He was a wealthy farmer and the most eligible bachelor in the area. Sheila was the daughter of a stonemason who was lucky enough to work in the Queen's Balmoral Estate. Her father had helped her get a job as an assistant housekeeper to the estate and then later as a secretary, but she happily gave these jobs up to become a young, blushing bride to Max Garvey. Sheila was a beauty, and the couple were blissfully in love. After they got married, they moved into the Garvey's large farmhouse, and it seemed as though they had everything they could ever dream of. They had plenty of money and a happy, loving relationship. Early in their marriage, they conceived three children, two daughters, Wendy and Angela, and a son, Lloyd. Sheila was stylish, and the family was flamboyant and outgoing. Max was charming and seemed to have a silver tongue. They were said to be the envy of most of the people who lived around them. Max set up a flying club and loved to fly his own private plane. He had several fast cars, which he drove like a madman, and Sheila would often travel to London coming back home dressed in the latest fashions. At the time, these were short skirts and skimpy tops, which showed off her figure and attracted many glances from other men. As with most relationships, the shine of a new relationship seems to dull as time goes on, and cracks begin to appear. Max became bored of the normal life of farming and being a father, and he began to look for more exciting things to fill his time, things that would keep him vital and happy. For a while, flying was enough, but even that became boring after a short time. He started drinking heavily and popping pills, trying all new kinds of drugs. Sometimes he would do this while flying his plane, doing dangerous dives and stunts over the North Sea. One time he swooped down so close to pleasure boats bobbing in the ocean that several of the people aboard dove into the ocean. He loved the buzz flying gave him, but that still wasn't enough to keep him satisfied. A man like Garvey may never have truly felt satisfied. In the mid-60s, the modern world was entering into an era of free love and swinging parties. Max was thrilled to jump into this lifestyle. He developed an obsession with pornography and nudity. 
At first he collected books and photos. Then he planned holidays to places where there were nude beaches. He would bring his wife and children to these beaches. Max was a ready and willing participant, but Sheila and the girls tended to stay clothed. Then the whole family went to a nudist camp in Corsica. Sheila was pregnant at the time, and she didn't want to go, but she felt she had to to make Max happy, so she went along with him. He would stare at other women, make fun of Sheila's hesitation, and in his mind, frigidity, and even had his daughter sit on the laps of old naked men. The whole thing made Sheila very uncomfortable, but again, she wanted to make her husband happy. Eventually, Max took up photography and enjoyed taking naked pictures of Sheila. She was okay with it, as long as he kept the pictures between the two of them. But of course, Max wasn't going to do that. And to her embarrassment, Max showed her pictures to many of his friends. She found out about it when Max had a friend over, and then when Max left the room, his friend told Sheila that he had seen much more of her than she presented to him at the time. When she confronted Max about it, he laughed her off and called her boring. They were arguing more and more. Sheila's way of dealing with the stress was to keep quiet to keep the peace. She held her breath and forced her feelings down deep. Meanwhile, Max became so obsessed with nudity that he decided to open his own nudist colony at a small house that he owned near Alford, which is 25 miles from Aberdeen. He did a fairly good job with the planning and had trees, large and mature trees, planted around the perimeter to keep it fairly private and free from spying eyes. At first, only close friends were invited, just some rich people having some harmless naked fun out in the middle of nowhere. We have seen many nudists while living aboard. Most anchorages have that one boat, or that group of boats, that the other boaters warn each other about. Most family boats, like ours, prefer not to anchor near the nudist boats, but we have done so in the past. Usually it's fairly benign, and our kids don't ask many questions, just giggle a bit and move on with their play. There has been a time or two, however, when we were visually assaulted by someone shaving their private areas right out in broad daylight, right in front of us as we were anchored. No one wants to see the clearing of a forbidden forest. Well, maybe somebody does, and if that's your thing and it doesn't hurt anybody else, okay, but it's not my thing, and it only hurt my eyes. I can't unsee it. The installation of a nudist colony among the trees and hills of Aberdeen didn't seem to bother the local residents much. In fact, one man was quoted as saying, I did hear that young lads up in Alford had taken up bird watching, and there was a fair trade in binoculars. Most of the time at nudist colonies, or naturalist gatherings as they're often called today, there are strict rules. The first of which is that everyone who is naked must always carry a towel to sit on for hygienic purposes. The second is that the only touch allowed cannot be perceived as sexual in nature. A quick hug or kiss on greetings or proper goodbyes are okay, but nothing more. These rules didn't apply at Max Garvey's gatherings. Nudity was just the beginning. The little Garvey cottage began housing orgies. There were folks lining up outside just to get down. It wasn't long before the cottage, which was the place to be for sex games and nudity, soon became nicknamed Kinky Cottage by the locals who were starting to hear stories. I'm sure this gossip spread like wildfire. Sheila didn't like to participate in the nudity, let alone orgies, and initially she refused to be involved. This resulted in arguments between her and Max. He would openly abuse her, calling her names in front of their friends. 
Names like Fuddy Duddy, Square, and Old Fashioned. Finally worn down by his teasing, bullying, and physical abuse, Sheila stopped resisting and threw herself enthusiastically into the sex games. The Garveys were active participants in their neighborhood activities, and they were still seen as outstanding citizens of the community. Max Garvey's sex games and orgies broke one taboo, but Max wanted more, and he had to move on to a new challenge. He found his next challenge in a most unexpected setting. Max Garvey held a position in the Scottish National Party. It was there that he met a handsome young man. This man's name was Brian Tavendale, and he was 20 years old. He'd already had a few affairs with young men and was certainly attracted to Tavendale, but he had other plans for young Brian. Brian was invited over to the Garvey's home frequently. Max would leave the young man alone with Sheila, and later he would demand to know from his wife if the two of them had sex. Sheila was really upset at the thought. The orgies with friends were something that she and Max did together. For her to have sex with another man on her own was an affair. It was infidelity. Sheila wasn't that type, at least not then. Then one night in 1967, Brian was staying over at the Garvey's house yet again. It would become a regular occurrence. In the early hours, his bedroom door was suddenly opened and a naked, shivering Sheila was shoved into the room by her husband. Max had finally broken Sheila's will. Sheila told Brian that she had been told to stay there for the night or else. The two of them ended up having sex. I wonder what the atmosphere felt like the next day at the breakfast table. Later that day, Max asked Sheila all about her night with Brian. He was quite pleased with how things turned out. Tavendale, for his part, was fairly pleased too. He later admitted he was happy to have a beautiful woman in his bed for the night. Max enjoyed asking Sheila about what she and Brian had done with each other in bed. He always felt as though Sheila was boring in the bedroom, and he hoped that Brian would teach her some new tricks. It became a regular thing at the Garvey house to have Brian spend the night. Max would flip a coin to decide who would get to sleep with Sheila that evening. I wonder how Sheila felt about that. Did she feel objectified, like a tool being passed back and forth to help get a job done? Or did she enjoy the company and attention of two men? Then the games took another turn with Max. He decided that he would toss a coin to determine who would sleep with Sheila. But this time, when Max lost the coin toss, he insisted that the three of them go to bed together. I have so many questions. Was this Max's way of being with Brian? Did he see it as being hospitable to his guests, or was it a power play over his wife and his friend? I need answers. Once there were three in bed, Max decided there needed to be a fourth. So he started an affair with Tavendale's sister, Trudy. You heard that right. Brian and Trudy were brother and sister. She quickly became Max's favorite mistress, and later she would speak of how they had made love in the cockpit of Max's plane while he was flying. Trudy was happy to join in the forces, with the Garveys and her own brother. The problem, although it didn't seem like much of one, was that Trudy was married, too, and she was married to the wife of a local policeman. Yep, you heard that right, too. Trudy's husband, Alfred, even joined the orgy once, when Max found another woman for him. What a tangled web they wove. Max wasn't just into kinky sex, he was also into violence. Trudy, the mistress, later confirmed that Max would hurt her, she recalled once she had to wear a surgical collar because he had beaten her so badly. With an extremely low threshold for boredom, Max eventually grew tired of Trudy, 
He wanted to see who else he could bring into the bedroom, so he told Sheila to break things off with Brian, and he was breaking things off with Trudy. It was at this point that the hairs began to stand up on Max Garvey's neck. This was when he realized that Sheila and Brian had fallen for each other and were deeply in love. It didn't matter to the two of them that Sheila was 11 years older than Brian, or that Max disapproved. Max was really used to getting his way by now, and he demanded that they split up. When Sheila rebelled against him, he became physically violent, and he threatened to shoot her between the eyes. Max also threatened to take the children and to leave her homeless. Sheila was stuck between a rock and a hard place. The physical violence and threat of death scared both Sheila and Brian. They ran off together, leaving the children behind. This put Max over the edge. Things were not going his way, but he did not give up easily. He had made it clear to Trudy that she was just for fun and that he had never intended to leave Sheila. He pursued Sheila with a mix of love bombing and threats. At the same time, she was asking advice from friends and family, ministers, and confidants. She wanted to know what she should do. She didn't feel safe at home, and she didn't feel loved. Her friends and acquaintances thought that she should return to Max and try to work things out. Max eventually was able to convince her to come back for the good of the family. Sheila loved Max in her own way and as the father of her children. She attempted to give him one more chance to be with her. She required that he treat her well and not be with anyone else sexually. He had to tame his demons. Sadly, this didn't work. Max couldn't change, and Sheila couldn't stop her feelings for Brian either. Their relationship was doomed. It was at this time that a seed was planted. A plan to get rid of Max began to grow. Years later, Brian Tevendale would admit that Sheila said, offhandedly, that it would be better with Max out of the way and that he was so in love with her he would have done anything she wanted. On the evening of May 14, 1968, Sheila and Max and their children enjoyed a quiet dinner together. The oldest daughter said Sheila may have been drinking a little bit more than she normally would, and that she sent the children to bed a little earlier than their normal bedtime. Max and Sheila went to bed together, and they had sex for the last time. On the morning of May 15th, Sheila woke up to find her husband gone, or so she claimed. Soon after, she reported him missing to the police. She said he was missing, but that he often went out flying for days at a time with friends, and she thought that's probably what happened in this case. The police began to search for Max, but there were no reports of him, and he didn't come back. His plane wasn't missing, and neither were any of his vehicles. A couple of months went by and people who were close to the family thought it was strange how quickly Sheila seemed to move on. She spent a lot of time with Brian, pretty much moving him in with her. He spent several nights a week in her home. She didn't seem too concerned that her husband was still missing. And then, in August, Edith Watson, Sheila's mother, who lived with her part of the time, asked Sheila about Max. Sheila said to her mom, "'You don't have to worry about him anymore.' Of course, Sheila's mother wanted to know what that meant and asked her daughter for more details. Sheila admitted to her mother that she thought Brian had killed her husband with the help of another man and disposed of his body. Sheila's mother went straight to the police. The police, in their turn, quickly questioned Sheila and Brian. On August 17, 1968, three months after Max had gone missing, police were led to his putrefying body. 
he had been left in an underground culvert. He was so well hidden that the police later admitted that it was likely he would never have been found. He had a gunshot wound to his head and a fractured skull. At the trial, the prosecution claimed that Sheila and Tavendale coldly plotted the murder. Tavendale said that the killing was Sheila's idea and he had gone along with it because he was in love with her. Sheila claimed that she had woken up in the middle of the night to discover that Tavendale and a man named Alan Peters had murdered Max. Alan, the third man in the mix, said that he had been asked to get rid of a man, but he didn't realize that get rid of meant murder. He and Tavendale were best buddies, and Tavendale was best man at his wedding. Peters claimed that Sheila persuaded Tavendale to murder Max so they could pursue their relationship and likely walk away with all of Garvey's money. She made dinner and went to bed with Max, had sex with him, and then in the early morning hours, she slipped out of bed to let Tavendale and Peters into the house. She handed them Max's twenty-two rifle. With Sheila watching from the bedroom door while her children were sleeping, Tavendale smashed Max's skull with the butt of the gun, then placed a pillow over his face. He shot Max Garvey once in the head. The sound of the gunshot was smothered slightly by the pillow, and the children didn't wake from the noises. The three of them went downstairs with their shattered nerves and drank a bottle of whiskey together. The two men then wrapped Max's corpse in a blanket and dumped him into the trunk of Peter's car. They took him and hid his body wrapped in an old sheet to the culvert at Lauriston Castle. Sheila stayed home to clean up. The court heard about how Max originally encouraged a relationship between Sheila and Brian because Sheila was frigid and he thought an affair would make her a better lover. Trudy told the court how Max would talk poorly of Sheila. She said Max had told her she got more pleasure from Trudy in two hours than he had done in his entire relationship with Sheila. I'm not sure if Trudy was stroking her own ego here or if she felt that a statement like that would help Sheila's defense. Sheila also spoke about the repeated physical abuse at the hands of her husband. And also, as stated earlier, Trudy confirmed that Max was physically violent with her as well. Brian Tevendale had grown up in St. Cyrus. He knew the area very well and played in its nooks and crannies when he was a boy. These memories of childhood gave him the perfect hiding place for a body. He dumped Max's body inside an underground channel that runs from Lauriston Quarry to the castle. He dropped it into an old inspection hole in the channel and dragged Garvey's body in with him. To get back out, he had to crawl over the body, and at one point he brushed his cheek against the cheek of the murdered man. Finally, a huge stone was pulled over Max's body. The case was quite salacious in its time. The jury found the case against Alan Peters could not be proven. Brian Tavendale was unanimously found guilty of the murder. Sheila Garvey was found guilty of murder by a majority verdict. In Scotland, a majority is enough to convict. Just a few years earlier, the pair would have been hanged for the crime, but capital punishment had been repealed and they were instead sentenced to life. At the end of the trial, Sheila wrote to Tavendale in a Perth prison and what she said was, Quote, I have decided to have nothing more to do with you ever again, end quote. The mad, crazy passion that had led them to murder had died. If they had gotten away with murder, 
an insurance policy confirmed that Sheila would have gained 55000 on one policy. And keep in mind, this was in the 1960s, so it would be about $500,000 in today's money. There were several other policies, and there was the farm, the investments, and capital. She would have been extremely wealthy. I believe that she felt trapped by Max. She likely didn't think she'd be able to survive on her own and without any money. As for Brian Tevendale, many people believed that Brian was well below Sheila's social status, and according to many people, they were an uneven match in the looks department as well. People didn't understand what attracted the couple to each other. Perhaps Sheila was looking for someone to save her from an uncomfortable situation, and maybe Brian saw dollar signs, knowing that if he had gotten away with it and stayed with Sheila, he'd be a wealthy man as well. Sheila and Brian never met again, but they were both released in 1978. Tevendale married and became the landlord of a pub in Perthshire. He died in 2003. Sheila married twice more. She was divorced once and then widowed by her third marriage. She led a respectable existence running a B&B in Stonehaven. Her later years were much quieter than her swinging years as mistress of Kinky Cottage. Sheila wrote a book about her role in the murder. It's called Marriage to Murder, My Story, and was published in 1980. In the book, she still claimed her innocence. She said that she woke up after her husband had been murdered in bed next to her. In a great podcast called Violent Delights by Isla Chakir, I probably botched that name. I'm sorry, Isla, if I did. The story is told over several episodes. She also had an interview with a nurse who looked after Sheila. Sheila was in her 70s and was in a nursing home. She had Alzheimer's and would often talk about the fact that she had been in jail for murdering her husband. The nurse who cared for her said that Sheila explained her side of the story on almost a daily basis over many years, but always maintained that she was not involved in the late night execution. The nurse went on to say that Sheila was immaculately dressed in her 70s as she was in her younger years and loved being out on the hospital grounds. She would tell her story over and over and over and spoke as though Tavendale was still her boyfriend despite never setting eyes on him again after they kissed goodbye while handcuffed at the conclusion of the trial in 1968. She would always go right back to the beginning of it saying I was in jail for murdering my husband she seemed trapped in an endless loop around that time of her life. I wonder if that's what hell feels like. Her children, now grown, were still young in her mind at this time. The nurse said that sometimes people with Alzheimer's get stuck in a time zone, and she thought that Sheila was stuck from about the time she saw her children last and went to jail. Her children were placed with her mother, but sadly, her mother died a short time after Sheila was put in jail and the children were placed in foster care. Sheila's mother wrote her a beautiful letter telling Sheila that she would gladly trade places with her. She said she'd give her life to free Sheila so that she could be with her children again. I'm sure she felt very guilty about telling the police what had happened that terrible night. The nurse also told a story of a new resident who came in. The man's name was Max and there was a day when people were calling him by his name. She was seen in the corner of the room, rocking back and forth, holding her ears so that she couldn't hear what they were saying. She looked terrified. The nurse said that she thought her husband was there, and she said she had never seen Sheila like that before. 
As soon as someone said his name, she was absolutely petrified. She never went into detail about what he made her do, just that she didn't like it and she didn't want to do it, but he had made her do it. It seemed to me that Sheila was an abused woman and she tried to seek help from people, people who included her doctor, the police, the minister, her own family, but they all pushed her back into the arms of her husband. She wasn't able to get divorced without losing her children and her home, and that's what led her to Max's murder. Of course, it would have been better if she chose divorce and received the support she needed. Max was a man with a lot of connections and power and likely would have taken everything from Sheila. And obviously, I don't condone murder, but it's sad that this family, and especially the children, were put through everything that they were because of the choices of Sheila and Brian. Sheila died at age 80 in November of 2014. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me if you'd like to discuss this case or if you have a case you'd like me to cover. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners, so don't be shy. You can reach me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. I look forward to hearing from you. I do have one correction to make from last week's episode. I'm not sure how I did it, but I accidentally typed the date of 1941 as when the women were found in the bay, but it was actually 1989. Uh, The rest of the dates in the story were correct. It's just that one date I got wrong. So my apologies there. I truly appreciate those of you who reached out to me to let me know about that. And I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas. Thank you.